Hi everyone and welcome to episode two of Conversations with the Code9 Foundation. We are incredibly lucky to have an amazing speaker join us for this episode, Greg Dean. Now, those of you from VicPol will be very familiar with the name Greg Dean. He's currently the station commander at, Greg, at Glen Waverley, but he's probably much more well known as being the senior sergeant in charge of welfare services. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today for this second episode of our brand new podcast series. Thanks, Erin. I feel pretty privileged to be episode number two and uh, hi, everyone listening. So, look, I want to start out by, because you've had a long career in Victoria Police and done a huge amount of work around mental health and well-being. And we were just chatting for a little while before we started recording the podcast. You've done a Churchill Fellowship. You've done uh, some work with the Emergency Services Foundation. Very familiar with this area, obviously within the area of welfare services as well. I'd love to get your reflections on just what you've seen in terms of the evolution of mental health and wellbeing within the emergency services over your career. So maybe if you can take us back, you don't need to tell us your age or how long you've been doing this for, but take us back to when you started out as a young copper and just sort of reflecting on how things have changed. How do you think, you know, have we got better? And um, yeah, you know, how far have we got to go? So that's a lot to cover in a podcast. But let's go yeah. back to when you first started and what was it like when you first started out in terms of mental health and wellbeing and did we even think about it back then? Okay, yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Erin. Look, I, um, I won't tell you my age, but the fact that <laughs> I've been 30 years is a, is a fair indication and it's probably, uh, I'm in a unique position from having been at welfare where I was involved in a lot of the implementation of educational presentations to our recruits and to our promotional programs, courses for sergeants and senior sergeants, etc. Um, when I joined 30 years ago, um, we didn't get any exposure to any education in our recruit training, um, nor was am I aware of any training or education to any promotional programs at all in your career. So from that respect, um, we have come a long way. I know the recruits get a lot of exposure now to, um, you know, resilience training and the services provided by wellbeing services, which was nil none back in the day. Um, you know, I know when I used to present um, at some of those courses at the sergeant's course and recruit training, I used to um, give an indication essentially of where we've come from by my time that I spent at the Major Collision Investigation Unit, which used to be known as the Accident Investigation Section. I spent 10 years there investigating fatal collisions. And uh, we used to get an automatic email um, on our return to the office within 24 hours of being to a um, fatal collision. We'd receive an email in our inbox from welfare back then that just used to it was literally, it was exactly that. It was a pro forma that just was the same one that was trotted out every time. This is a phone number if you need any help. And um, I, along with most people back then, uh, just deleted it straight away um, for no other reason than the fact that that was just what you did. We did, you know, we thought we were bulletproof, we were able to cope with it. Um, I have a lot of mates that I keep in contact from my 10 years at the crash squad that um, are extremely unwell. Uh, some are getting treatment for it, some aren't. 
But what was interesting, Erin, is as I kept going through these presentation classes from a welfare services perspective over the last four or five years, one of the more common questions I used to get was, where are our bloody emails? So we've gone from a workforce or a population of workers that used to see those emails as pro formers and we're just going to delete them to almost now people having an expectation that they receive contact from welfare services, which I think is great. Um, it's In that regard, it's, it's come a long way. And look, we still do have a lot of people that would see it as a pro forma email, but I just think it's a significant shift that you see that people are now expecting, expecting contact. It. Yeah. But that's, um, it's interesting you say that because I'm sure you would have seen it in the media just in the past week or so that the, the firefighters from New South Wales RFS have actually been speaking out saying that um, they even expect more than that now, that that's not good enough. So I think that's been a significant cultural change and shift in our thinking, which is significant that they say that that's all they got was that email with the standard perfunctory, here's the EAP number if you need to speak to someone, call it. And they're like, well, that's not good enough. We actually expected or were hopeful that someone would call us. So I think that's a significant change in the way we think about mental health within the emergency services. So I think that's really positive. Um, but, yeah, back to what you were saying around your, your experiences. So you started out within the major collision squad. So where, where to for you from there? Yeah, so that was uh, – so I started there in the mid-90s and I'd been at um, – back then it was called the Traffic Operations Group out at Dandenong and just did some general duties policing. And then after I left, I uh, left the major collision unit in 2007 to take up promotion to the rank of sergeant at Collingwood. Um, and was a sergeant at Collingwood for uh, probably five, six years before I started – trying to seek promotion to senior sergeant, which I eventually did in about 2013 at Collingwood, and then did some uh, some station commander duties at Collingwood and Richmond, um, Melbourne East, Melbourne Highway Patrol, uh, did a little bit of upgrading as an inspector, as a road policing inspector, um, and then decided to take up the role as the senior sergeant at um, Police Welfare, which I did. Um, coincidentally, I got the job there, I think, about two weeks after Mr Ashton released uh, the mental health review back in two th July 2016. So 2016, so we're thinking that's, that's before the Senate inquiry into, into mental health of the people behind Triple O, as they called it. So back then, that was still before we were really talking about mental health of emergency services personnel. It was... You know, after the 2015 national coronial figures came out about one paramedic, one uh, police officer or one firefighter was dying by suicide every six weeks. But it was before it was really in the media attention. So how were things then, when you took on that role, how were you finding it in terms of that conversation around mental health? It still wasn't really a normalised, everyday conversation back then, was it? No, look, I, um, I don't know how to explain I've always, whether it was well, as a sergeant at Collingwood or whether I was a senior Connie at Glen, uh, the major collision at Glen Waverley, I, um, I've always 
really been, a, I think, a, a real people person. Like, I always took time out to speak to people, you know, whether they're just colleagues on the van or whatever. But, you know, certainly when I got to senior sergeant rank, I certainly saw my role as someone who was there to look after the people, my people that were working in my workplace, that that was my primary function, was to look after my staff. Um, so I suppose the big shock that came for me when I got to welfare, Aaron, wasn't so much because I, you know, I would like to think that throughout most of my career I've made sure that I've been very visible and very upfront with my empathy and my compassion with my with all everyone I've worked with. So that so much wasn't a shock for me because I'd been practicing that most of my career. Um, what really shocked me when I got to welfare is, you know, I've gone from a station commander at Melbourne East at the time where I sort of only had vision over uh, the welfare and well-being concerns of the people at my police station to all of a sudden having visibility over the welfare and well-being concerns for the whole of Victoria Police. Mm. And I was, you know, look, I took great pride in the minimal amounts of people that I had taken sick leave at my office, the, amount of, the minimal amount of staff I had in long-term illness, and then all of a sudden you get this vision of, Back then it was probably about seventeen to 18,000 people and it absolutely blew me away. And what, what I sort of didn't really have a big grasp on was it wasn't just people that were not travelling well because of, say, for instance, their attendance at a gruesome homicide or a gruesome collision, which, you know, for want of a better description, you know, the high-profile critical incidents, there were people... I didn't realise how many colleagues we had, you know, that had young children with terminal illnesses yeah. or a wife who's very sick or people having relationship issues or alcohol dependency. Because I never really um, looked outside of my own sphere and to all of a sudden having this vision, it just I just really remember in the first couple of months of thinking, holy smokes, in this organ, and it, when you talk about it, you feel like you shouldn't be surprised because it's a you have an eighteen thousand large organisation. So the balance of probabilities, and we're a cross section really of the community. That that's probably what, in realistic terms, is going to be the case. But I think, from an emergency services perspective, we get caught up in our own little bundle all the time, and we don't think outside a little bit. And you know, it was just a, just an initial shock. Was, um, yeah, I remember um, when I spoke to somebody in peer support in Ambulance Victoria once a while ago, and that was a similar reflection as well, as he said, people are surprised, but the majority of people who actually want to talk, that it's not always about the bad job. It's often about the bad crap that's just happening in their life in general. And we forget about that, that behind the uniform, they're still just human beings that deal with the same crap that everyone else deals with. But then on top of that, they're dealing with the, the work stuff. So, yeah, we sometimes forget about that, that they're still dealing with the same stuff that everyone else does, but then they layer on all that other, you know, work-related stuff too. So, yeah. You know, therein lies one of my greatest passions and one of my recommendations I brought back from my Churchill, Erin, is around um, family education and family involvement. Um, you know, you say we put up with all this stuff at work, 
and we've been very good over a very long period of time about turning up to work, putting on our uniform, putting on a smiley face, we're at work and we just do what we have to do at work, we keep it to ourselves and then we go home and generally that's where we're in our own little comfort zone and our own little sanctuary and you know some people be by themselves, others with family but we haven't paid enough attention, in my view, in my personal opinion, we haven't paid enough attention to educating our loved ones and our family about, you know, what does what does this mean if Greg is all of a sudden not sleeping as well? Mm. Um, what if Greg Greg's daughter all of a sudden thinks, well, hang on, Dad's a lot snappier than what he used to be, or um, he's not sleep, he's swearing a lot more than what? What does that actually mean? Yeah, and that's, um, that's um, a discussion we've been having quite frequently at the moment on the partners um, and carers page within Code 9 as well is that, gee, we really need to be having these kinds of uh, discussions and and education like within training um, for the families um, within the emergency services as well. Like why isn't it routinely done within VicPol and within the ambulance services and within fire at the training? Bring the family members in. You know, why isn't that routinely done? Yeah, I know. So I know um, before I got to welfare, there used to be a orientation night at the academy in about week five for the recruits, and they used to have a, a family night. <clears throat> but essentially, that family night, Aaron, was they used to show a nice little fluffy video up on the TV about the history of the police academy and Victoria Police, and then you take your family for a walk around the academy, and then um, you'd all be invited to chomp on a. Um, you know, a couple of Monte Carlo biscuits <laughs> from the catering unit bin and, a, and an instant coffee out of a polystyrene cup. Um, so it's not really preparing you for the realities of what it's going to be like to live with an emergency personnel, um, yeah, someone who's, whose life is literally going to change by what they're going to see and do out there. And I know, um, interestingly, um, not long after I came back from my Churchill Fellowship, uh, my mum and dad actually um, saying to me, actually, my mum apologised to me after reading my report. She apologised to me. And I said, what are you apologising for? She goes, after all these years, I never, ever, ever thought about the things that you and Nat, who is my wife, is in the job, would ever, you would ever see this sort of stuff and what the impact was. You know, I remember her being, um, my mum being quite vocal me going into the academy, which was in 1989, so not long after Tynan and Air were murdered, she was always quite vocal about She's always concerned that I'd be shot or I'd be injured at work because it's a dangerous job policing, but there was never any concerns about mental health. And as recently as 12 months ago after reading my report, my mum apologised to me because she wasn't aware that, um, you know, that I would be faced with the sort of things we had to see. Um, so... Look, that's one of the things that I'm, I'm still am working on and with both the academy and recruit training is one of my recommendations is to implement a family education component very mm. early on um, in recruit training. I mean, how good would it be to have, I mean, I'm sure there'd be people willing to do it, like have a, have a couple of wives or mums or dads or people who'd be willing to go in and talk to the recruits or to bring bring the family members in or something just to talk to them and say this is what you're going to experience so people aren't blindsided well is that is that not the most or the best form or one of the best forms of early intervention we could ask for is that we have 
extra set of eyes and ears around our colleagues and our staff at home as well. So essentially, you know, we're, I know at Glen Waverley we work really, really hard about normalising conversations. You know, every Tuesday when I conduct our readout, we must have a mental health conversation. It is the first thing we talk about every Tuesday at the readout is a mental health conversation. Mm. And the reason why I do that is to normalise the conversation in the workplace so it's not a scary subject. You know, I have a, I have a lolly jar on my desk in my office, Erin, and the reason I have that there is to try and entice the troops to come in and t- take a lolly so that then it gives me the opportunity whilst they're in it to have a chat to them. So, you know, it's about normal. Now, if we've got eyes and ears on you at work, and we have educated eyes and ears on you when you're at home, we, we're we giving early intervention a much better opportunity than what we have in the past, in mm. my view. Mm. So that's one of my really, that's probably one of the, one of the most passionate um, recommendations that I have in my Churchill Fellowship report is to really establish some family education right from the very start. I think it's so important. I know one of the um, uh, volunteer organisations in the US that I've been doing some work with around helping them um, establish one of their wellbeing models and what they've just been doing is um, establishing like a little online portal for the family members of their emergency volunteers and it's kind of like a bit of an online thing where they can go on and once their family member has been sent out on an activation during or a deployment during a disaster, it's kind of like a bit of a checklist and their family members can just go online and it kind of, firstly, it, it kind of lets them know where their family members are, um, roughly, and, but it's also like a bit of an online checklist. Like once your family member gets home, if they display any of these kind of behaviours or issues, these are the things you should be concerned about. These are some of the conversation starters you can use, you know, to, to sort of check in on their wellbeing. Um, but, yeah, if you're worried, these are the support services you could access. These are the things you could be doing. And it was such a great idea, just this whole little wellbeing thing just for the family members. And I thought, how easy. It took them, you know, a couple of days to set up this little website, hardly any money, but these family members now felt like they were part of it and so engaging. And I thought, you know, we should be doing something like these, this for our family members here. Well, it's not, uh, you know, we have, Vic Cole now has our external facing wellbeing, face, uh, internet page, blue space uh, wellbeing. So, you know, historically... We only, you know, the staff were only able to access all the information about EAPs and police psychology tip sheets that are published internally on our intranet. So you can only access it when you're at work. That, that's no good to our staff who are, are not travelling so well and are, and are off work. Um, so I know uh, probably just over 12 months ago, so we released Blue Space Wellbeing, which is an external-facing website, which is also designed for family members. Mm-hmm. So they, you can, if you're off work or you're on not, days off after night shift or you're on your leave or whatever it is, that you still have access to certain information that may be useful for your wellbeing from home too, which is – and it's not, it's not pie-in-the-sky – Big ticket stuff, Erin. Is it? It's just something simple. Mm. Doesn't doesn't take a rocket scientist to develop it. It doesn't take a whole lot of money. Um, but just you know, things like that have certainly been a step forward. Um, 
since I um, have been involved intrinsically in the welfare space when I got to welfare. Great. Can I ask what happened? So once um, police officers retire or are ill health retired, so yep. the officer themselves still gets access to welfare services? Absolutely. So what about, but sorry, what about their partners and, and their family members? Yeah, and this was a uh, this was a um, an area where there's a lot of uh, misinformation or um, a lot of a lack of knowledge. And it was interesting. I used to go and do station training days or you know education at the academy. That um, the services available to police employees, <coughs> Vicpol employees, whilst they're in the job, continues to be available to them lifetime. So even if they resign from Big Pole as a 35-year-old and go and work somewhere else, for the remainder of their life, regardless of whether they're in the job or not, they have access as well as their immediate family have access to the services that they did when they're in the job. Um, you know, the other thing that used to be always um, a bit confusing for people, and mainly because it was the case a few years back, is there used to be a maximum number of accesses people could have to an EAP provider. Um, there's essentially uh, no limit anymore to the amount of contact you can have with an EAP provider. As long as you require um, the assistance of the provider through the EAP, um, then you get access to it. Um, and the access continues for, for the rest of your life, whether okay. you're retired and you're 75 or whether you're resigned and you're, 28, as long as you'd spent 24 hours in a job, essentially, it was open to you and your immediate family. Well, that's really important to know. I think we'll really, we'll, we'll put that out there on the Partners and Carers page on Code 9 because, yeah, I don't think you, I don't know if everyone's aware of that. The only, the only thing I'll say is, so the definition of an immediate family is, um, you know, your husband, wife, yep. partner, uh, spouse, and you, your children, your dependent children up until mm -hmm. the age of 21. Mm-hmm, Okay. But that's still really important because the, I know there are there were some wives that just didn't. I don't know if they realised that they could still access the EAP. Yeah, no, they and even 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 your wife or your husband or your partner. If we go by that scenario that someone retired at the age of thirty, you know, thirty years later when they're sixty, that that um, that veteran employee's partner, husband or wife still gets that same access level thirty years later. Um, that's, that's important so, to know. I think everyone will know what I'm talking about when I mention it. As coppers, we love stuff for free. <laughs> Who doesn't? Who doesn't? <laughs> but I'm sure the Ambos and the Fireys and, um, you know, the Esther Call Takers and all that, they're probably all the same. We all like stuff for free. And I used to say to her, look, here, I'm offering you stuff for free, guys and girls. Get on board. Um, and it's lifetime free. So No, that's um, important to know. Listen, I'm, I'm really um, keen. I'm aware of the time. Um, I'm really keen to hear about your Churchill Fellowship. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so 2017, I was lucky enough to be awarded a St. Winston Churchill Fellowship to uh, investigate early intervention into mental health in policing, uh, as well as um, peer support for uh, retired staff. Um, it took me uh, across the US, Canada and the UK for eight weeks where I, I spent a lot of time speaking with some outstanding people um, in relation to their experiences. You know, I, I spent a lot of time with uh, some police officers who attended some horrendous incidents. You know, I spent 
half a day with the first police officer on scene at the Sandy Hook Primary School massacre. I spent time with police officers who responded to the San Bernardino terrorist shootings, the Manchester Arena bombings. And the purpose of meeting these sorts of people and uh, the departments there was to try and understand how they react to providing well-being and welfare to their staff. Um, Chief Commissioner Ashton was my referee, and can I? It would, you know, this is a, my personal opinion. Aaron is, you know, I know some will disagree with me, but I think where we stand as an organisation, and maybe even as a sector to some extent now, is in relation to well-being, is due to Mr. Ashton's passion for um, in making an improvement in, in well-being within Victoria Police, and I think that's had a, a flow-on effect to other sectors in the emergency services field. He was my referee, and I remember him speaking to me the week before I left on my church. He said, Greg, don't be surprised if you get overseas to find out we're doing okay and we're not as far behind as what you might think. And I didn't think much of it at the time, I must say, Aaron, because like a lot of people, I just think most of the times that places like the US are going to be ahead of us and have got bigger and better stuff than us. But can I say that I came back from uh, my eight weeks in my Churchill and Victoria Police was seen by everyone I visited almost exclusively to be so far ahead of what they have in the places that I visited. It wasn't funny. Yeah, look, that doesn't surprise me at all, Greg. And I think just whenever I travel around the world, I think here in Victoria in general, Victoria Police, Ambulance Victoria, now MFB as well. We we are leading the way around the world when it comes to wellbeing in emergency services. It doesn't surprise me at all. Well, the only there was only one policing jurisdiction in those three countries, Erin, and granted I didn't go to all of them, but the NYPD were the only police department I visited that had any wellbeing structure that resembled anything like we have in Big Pole. The Met Police in London, who are, from what I'm aware, the second biggest policing um, organisation in the world, um, are so far behind it wasn't funny. Um, I just must have looked aghast in some of my meetings with, with people. You know, The constant commentary I got was, well, that's a really good idea, Greg, what you guys are doing. We should look into doing something like that. I mean, we all know how long it takes. When you say we should look into doing something, you know how long that generally takes for something to actually happen. Yeah, and it it constantly surprises me as well. We had an incredible and gorgeous um, person, Jo Mildenhall, out recently from the UK and she was doing the rounds and she she came out and spoke about wellbeing and and she's doing a a PhD uh, looking at wellbeing within ambulance services at U- in the UK, and she was blown away about what we were doing here in Victoria because they're not even really doing peer support for their paramedics in the UK. And I'm like, how in this day and age can you not be doing something as basic as peer support? So I think we, uh, as much as we say we've got so much to do here still in Australia and in Victoria, we are still leading the world in so many ways. So we've got a lot to be very proud of here, I think. Well, the, the big wake-up call for me in the UK is you, people might remember the police officer Palmer who was stabbed outside Westminster a couple of years ago. When I arrived in the UK um, and I was meeting with the Met Police, it was the day before, sorry, two days before the 12-month anniversary of his death. 
And I said to their lead of their occupational health and safety area, which um, is was the equivalent of my role at welfare back in Big Pole, I said, "What sort of what have you guys got in place for the anniversary of, of Police Officer Palmer's death? You know, what have, what have you got in place?" And he he looked at me and he said, "Um, you know what, Greg? That's really embarrassing. We probably should have done something, shouldn't we?" I said. Uh, Probably. I said, but have you arranged to catch up with his wife or anything like that? And he says, I'm really ashamed to say that we actually haven't had any contact with her since the week after he was killed. Mm. And I thought, wow, like as bad as what a lot of Vic Pole staff think we are, in Vic, there, there's no way that we would have let that happen. Yeah. Um, you know, we put out, we were putting out anniversary messaging around, you know, the Burke Street and the... Um, Flinders Street incidents, and it's always a converse, ongoing conversation with him. Wellbeing about significant events coming up, about putting out messaging around support for anniversaries, and just things like that just really blew me away. So we are um, doing a lot better here than others are, but we can't rest on our laurels. And I, I suppose my we come into a stage we're about one month away from where our chief commissioner's finishing up his role, Aaron. Mm-hmm. Um. And you can probably tell I'm a, I'm a big advocate for Mr. Ashton, but I just really, really, really hope that the person that gets um, takes the baton from his hands in about a month's time displays and has the compassion and the empathy and the drive to continue pushing the way Mr. Ashton has over the last four to five years. That's my that's my big my big fear is if that doesn't happen and we lose momentum with where we've come from recently. Um, then we'll be in all sorts of trouble. So I've just got everything crossed. I mean, leadership is so important, isn't it? I mean, you've mentioned um, Gray and Ashton's been so important for Vic Pole. Tony Walker's been instrumental in that cultural shift at, at Ambulance Victoria. Um, our leaders are so important in, in you know, changing that culture, in normalising conversations. And I think, again, I'm very passionate. I think Victoria leads the way in so many aspects of, of the the groundbreaking work we've done in um, changing well-being and um, and mental health um, in Victoria in, in Australia in terms of emergency services. Greg, we're we're coming to the end here. We've already been chatting for half an hour. It feels like five minutes. Um, we haven't. There's so much more I would love to talk to you about. So I think maybe we just need to get you back for another podcast. But I would like to to end with your reflections on, and I think it, it it's fitting in that we're talking about you know. Chief uh, you know, Graham Ashton coming to the end of his um, tenure, but where do you see us going? Where's next? So we've had the, the Senate inquiry in 2018. We did the massive big Beyond Blue study um, 2018 as well, that big national survey of some 21,000 emergency service personnel right across the country. Um, you know, it showed that there were huge issues, certainly around stigma, one of the big standouts for me was that the, the issue around stigma was really the self-stigmatisation, that yeah. our emergency service personnel are, are stigmatising themselves, not so much each other. Um, but really, what have, we, what have we achieved since then? We keep highlighting these issues. We keep coming up with recommendations. But where are the changes? Like, what are we, what's holding us back? What do we actually need to do for these changes to actually be implemented? You know, what, what's got to happen for these changes to actually occur, in your opinion? Uh, in my opinion, Erin, and you mentioned the word before, leadership. Um, and, I, you know, it's, 
leadership from the top is is very important. But I think leadership at the top is not just the very top of the tree. And I briefly touched on it before. I think from a Victoria Police perspective, and I probably uh, will resonate with our colleagues in the other sectors of the emergency sector, is we need our leaders, whether that be our station commanders, whether it be our um, you know, station commanders at the fire stations or whatever it is. You know, I speak from a Victoria Police perspective. Senior sergeants in particular, I think, play such a vital role in progressing everything in this mental health space. So we are, in my opinion, as a senior sergeant, we are people managers. We like to, I know as coppers, we like to catch crooks and we like to get involved. But my personal view, Erin, is, is that at my position I am now at Glen Waverley Police Station, I see myself in charge of all the staff at my station and it's my role to look after my staff because you know what, if I do that, my staff, they'll catch the crooks for me. And that's why I get a little bit upset sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll go off as a senior sergeant to our local tasking meeting and I'll cop a pat on the back from the superintendent because we've reduced theft from motor vehicle statistics in our area. And I'll always turn around and say, boss, come and give that pat on the back at the readout on Tuesday to the troops. I said, because they're the ones that have made all those improvements. They're the ones that have caught the crooks there. They're patrolling in the div vans in the middle of the night when it's raining or it's cold or it's hot. But are my staff going to be motivated to do that if they're not being looked after? And I think as managers, if we can all share that view to look after our staff, then our staff are going to want to work for us and we'll get the results and they'll just come naturally instead of trying to create them. And it's just simple in my view. We look after our staff and they'll look after the rest. And I know there's a Richard Branston quote out there, which I have in my office, and I can't remember it verbatim, so I apologise it's a little bit wrong, but it's um, I don't look after my, my customers. I look after my staff. And if I do that, my staff will look after their customers. So, you know, that's one of the one of my mantras is that I want to look after my staff. And I do I have seen some big improvements even as recently as after the horrific tragedy on uh, the Eastern Freeway where our four colleagues were killed. It was really heartening to see the advancements I think we've made in that area um, in looking after our staff and what occurred in the days and weeks after that from a station manager perspective. It's come a long way, but... Uh, in my view, that's what has to change is the station management and the station leadership cohort uh, looking after their staff better and knowing what their role is. Yeah, I think really interesting reflections there. And, oh, Greg, I, I mean, as I said, I could talk to you for hours, but um, I just think we maybe need to get you back for another podcast down the track because there's so much more we could cover. Unfortunately, we didn't even get a chance to touch on your um, the work you did with your ESF um, uh, scholarship there either but so much more we could touch on um, in yeah other podcasts down the track but so much interesting stuff that we covered there today so thank you so much for your time today thank you so much for everything you have contributed to this important field of mental health and well-being within our emergency services so thank you so much for everything you have done
can I just finish? Thanks, Aaron. Can I just finish with a message to, um, particularly for Vic Pol staff, but it also goes for everyone. My, my message is is that um, you know I may not be the senior sergeant at welfare anymore, but I am more than happy, more than happy for anyone to reach out to me uh, through my work email address, which most will probably know if you're in Vic Pol, but it's um, Greg Dean D E A N at police.vic.gov.au. If anyone's got any questions for me or wants to have a yak about anything or where I see us going or what I've got in place for my church or for my ESF scholarship, more than happy to hear from you. We'd love to chat to people so they can flip me an email and I'll get in contact with them because I, you know, if having a conversation with someone that I've never met before means that it, it might turn them in the right direction through something I can help them with, I'm more than happy to facilitate that. Oh, that's incredible. I think I'll send you an email myself. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Sarah. I appreciate it.